Okay, I need one of these too. Um, I have an opening paragraph here that I'm going to read. Just to give you some uh, information before we jump in. Uh, last Sabbath, and in case you're interested, I did a PowerPoint presentation on God's anger. And it's it's kind of where we're going to wind up possibly. So I may do it again here. Uh, though it's, I don't know quite how to pull that off. <laughs> because uh, to do PowerPoint you need projection. And uh, I would have to call audiovisual and get them out on a Sabbath morning, which they're not too thrilled about. <laughs> so we'll see what happens on that. But um, anyway, where we ended up is uh, talking about who the real angry God is in the Old Testament. And uh, I'll leave that for you as a surprise. Uh, at the end of this journey, I will re- be revealing that. So, how we understand God's wrath is foundational to how we perceive the atonement, the end of sin and sinners, Jesus' intercession, and many other teachings of Christianity. If God is angry and hostile towards sin and sinners, ready to punish sinners, and if in his holy antagonism against sin he must be reconciled, then the atonement necessarily involves appeasement of his anger. If, on the other hand, an appeasement would be atonement, you see, in that context. If, on the other hand, we are the ones who are hostile, angry, and fearful of God, and God is holy love itself, then atonement is about God winning back our love and trust. And in the latter scenario, then, what is the nature of God's wrath? The Old Testament alone contains some 15 different root words for wrath or anger. This is more than double of what the Babylonians had in root words. Kind of interesting. But the Babylonians strongly believed in appeasement of divine anger, and that's a whole different study in itself. Um, The New Testament has only six, the most common of which are orge and thumas. Out of the 968 times these words are used in the Old Testament, I'm referring to now, between 550 and 561 times, the wrath is God's. That's huge. That means a lot of the Old Testament has to do with God's wrath. For, inst- one, for instance, one of the words used for wrath also means, oh, I'm sorry, but not all of the 968 times do the words mean wrath or anger For instance, one of the words used for wrath also means nose. (laughs) Thus, about 155 uses of these words should be subtracted from the total 968 minus 155 equals uh, 813 total, of which 550 to 561 refer to God's wrath, which (laughs) really hikes up the percentage. If we believe that inspiration is a process of the Holy Spirit imbuing the mind of the Bible writers with thoughts, ideas, and symbols to write these in their own words, then the words are human and thus do not fully convey the divine mind. What that means is what we look up in a lexicon, which is what we call the dictionary for uh, ancient Near Eastern words, what we look up in a lexicon or dictionary is the human perception of these words it's the human definition it's not necessarily the biblical one 
To define biblical words by a lexicon, I'll see, I just said that. <laughs> uh, to get to the truth about God, it is necessary to study all the places a concept is referred to in order to find keys, key passages that will help us get behind the words to the truth the Holy Spirit intended. This study will focus on God's wrath, looking for keys by which to define and describe it. It will look at the Bible in its finished form, the canon, and attempt to see how that term is developed and to ascertain why God seems so angry in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. Let us embark. What I've done is I'm starting us out on the... I'm I'm not making you go through every single text and wander around and try to get in a maze and try to figure out how to get out of it. I I don't think that that would be the most productive. So I'm st- I'm cutting to the chase and I'm going to where I find the keys. Okay? And the keys to me, uh the most definitive statement in the Bible and if you want to look this up in your Bibles. You know, I've kind of wrestled with this myself and um you kind of have to keep the big picture in mind, I think. You know, God's plan of salvation is very precious, and I, I think this is what it's really all about. He has to keep that going, you know. Yeah, and is God in the destroying business or the saving business? Yeah, and I think the appeasement thing is a pagan idea. Yeah. I, it, it's easy to try to say that, but it's another thing to convince people of that. Let me get my Bible here. Turn to Romans chapter 1 and it, uh, you understand when i say i'm doing a canonical look at this i'm not looking at it as it develops i'm not trying to draw a history of it though we will come to that before we're through but what i wanted to do first is is find the key passages in the in the bible that define it for us and that are definitive in nature verse 18 and i'll ask uh, christina would you read uh, two verses and then pass the mic around. And go ahead and pick up that one too. Please. 118 and 19, yeah, read those. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay, uh, before Adam reads, we have to we have to note that the word revealed is a definitive word. It means to disclose, to uncover, to unveil. It means, uh, it assumes that what it's about to reveal has not been clarified. And this is going to clarify it. The word revealed there is the root word for revelation, the book of Revelation, apocalypse. It's actually apocalypto in Greek. So, with that, go ahead and read on. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that have he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, <clears throat> they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Okay, Um, so we're going to ask the question, 
What does God do when he gets angry? The next verse kind of explains that. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts and sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Okay, since they didn't think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God abandoned them to a defective mind to do inappropriate things. So they were filled with all injustice, wicked behavior, greed, and evil behavior. They are full of jealousy, murder, fighting, deception, and malice. They are gossips. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Okay, so we're done. Three times it says, God gave them up. And the word there is paradidomi, uh, which means to hand over, to give up. So, in terms of action, what God does when he gets angry, we can say that this text defines wrath as giving people up to the consequences of their choice. Um, if you go back to verse 27 in the middle, uh, they were paid back with the penalty they deserved for their mistake in their own bodies. This is the natural consequences. But notice the word penalty there. Uh, they received their own punishment. They punished themselves, as it were, uh, with what they did. So, so this gives us a key, and to see where that key leads us in terms of the rest of the uses of the Old Testament. Uh, now we can ask another question. How does God feel when he gets angry? Is it like, I'm going to huff off out of here because you stink to high heavens? Oh, that's how the Babylonians saw So we have to really wrestle with what does God feel when he gets angry? And do you have any ideas of where to go on that? Look at Mark chapter 3. And it's in the first few verses. And Adam, would you like to read... Why don't you read um, through verse 5. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Okay. So Jesus looks around at them in anger, grieved. The meaning of the Greek is actually exasperation. But his his exasperation, his anger, was built on grief. 
In fact, in the Greek, it's closer to he looking around them at anger, deeply grieved. So it's like you, like uh, Mark is equating his anger with grief. Now, I want to do a little canonical study, and and this comes out of something that I've been developing for the last several years. Um, It's fairly new on my back burner. But I have come to a different way of reading the Old Testament than most people use. And I I got it from Jesus and from Ellen White. Um, Jesus, when he talks about divorce, remember says, uh, Moses allowed you to divorce for the stiffness of your necks and the hardness of your hearts. But in the beginning, it was not so. And I think there he underlies, underlines a hermeneutic principle of how to read the Old Testament. That we need to go back to the beginning. What was the original plan? What was, what was God's ideal plan? And then see how far we've come away from that and recognize that God is meeting us maybe where we are. So how I've, uh, how I've highlighted this is to suggest that there are two voices in the Old Testament, actually in all of Scripture. There's a minor voice of God's preferred will. And then there's a major voice that seems to dominate in the Old Testament, particularly that is God's adapted or acquiesced will. That is his, he, it is his will, but it's not his preferred will. It's his will adapted and acquiesced to the will of the people. And so it reflects that will. The major voice reflects ancient and eastern perceptions of God. It reflects ancient and eastern practices. It reflects all kinds of things that basically are giving in or surrendering to the will of the people. Like when Israel wanted a king. Exactly. That's that's the easiest one to see in the Old Testament in terms of, of how I use it. And I have developed a carefully and rather lengthy criteria for it. If it's tied to the book of Genesis, it is God's preferred will. Because Genesis is creation. It's the book of the beginnings. Uh, the beginnings of humankind, the beginnings of the Sabbath, the beginnings of the fall, the beginning of sin on this planet, uh, the beginning of ancient Near Eastern culture in Babylon, the Tower of Babel, the beginning of Abraham, the, the 12 tribes and the Israelite nation. So it's the book of beginnings and therefore you would expect to hear God's minor voice more majorly in that book. If it's if it's first in a narrative sequence, for example, a kingship thing, you, know, uh, you have that very clear preferred voice in 1 Samuel 8 when God says they've rejected me from being king over them. Uh, another example would be the conquest of Canaan. The very first time God mentions anything about taking on the land of Canaan, he says nothing about fighting. He says, I will drive them out before you. That's all he plans on is displacement. But because they didn't trust him and they took up arms, 
they ended up doing conquest, and God helped them, and he told them to do it, and he told them to do the Karam, which they wanted to do anyway, because that was ancient and Eastern culture. So you have the conquest as major voice, but the preferred voice would be no killing, God doing, God doing, taking care of it by displacement. So that's just two examples, and if it's unique in the ancient Near East, and it very stands out, it's very unique, then it is also God's preferred voice. If it reaches its denouement uh, in the New Testament, in other words, it, its fruition comes out in the New Testament and it becomes the major voice in the New Testament, then it is also God's preferred will. Because the, the minor voice of the Old Testament becomes the major voice of the New Testament. Uh, so I have developed this. Now, I have a question for you, and you probably don't know the answer to this, but I always like to raise it anyway. In, in Genesis, when does God get angry? When he comes to the garden and they don't come to greet him. Okay, let's go there. Uh, that'd be Genesis 3. And let's go to verse 8. And Bianca, would you like to read? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Okay, Tar, would you like to take on from there? And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the fruit from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will, go ahead. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pregnancy very painful. In pain you will bear children. You will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree that I commanded, don't eat of it. Cursed is the fertile land because of you. In pain you will eat it from it every day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face... You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you will return. Okay. Where in the story does it say God is angry? It doesn't. So if, you're, if you were coming at this never having heard that God ever got angry, what would be your assumption? If you never had met anybody ever angry in your life, would you assume he was angry? Concerned? Very concerned. Very upset, maybe. But would you see he was angry? And so, what I, one of the things that I teach in, in the process of doing can, and what we call canonical criticism is that it's important that we look for what it says and what it doesn't say that we've always assumed it said. And, and I think 
I think our natural disposition is to hear God being angry. I think that's our natural bent because we've encountered, whenever we see a scene like this in, in a family, usually a parent's mad, right? And so we just assume that for God when it's not necessarily. And you notice he does not curse the man or the woman. That's another thing my students always tell me. Oh, he, uh, the curse of Eve and the curse of Adam. He, he, there's nothing about curse in there. It's just these are the consequences of what you've done. It seems that his perception of wrath is somehow tied up with guilt, your sense of guilt. Yeah, it is. And our sense of guilt is programmed by how people respond to what we do wrong as we're growing up. I mean, a, a, a baby... A baby crawls over and grabs a glass vase from off a coffee table and holds it up and smashes it down and it breaks. Okay? The baby's done something wrong. Does the baby know it? No. The baby gets whacked. (laughs) So he associates pain And if that pain was administered in anger, he associates anger with that. And that becomes his guilt. That becomes the source of his guilt. Does it not? It's conditioned. Real guilt, genuine guilt, is not imposed externally. Genuine guilt is the recognition that what I did was harmful, hurtful, and hurt someone else. Or maybe myself. Real guilt is the recognition that what I did was alien to the God of love. So, I'm I'm unpacking this because how we see God's anger is just huge. Okay, where else in Genesis do you think God is angry? Well, I was thinking the flood, but then you've already answered that one here. Well, let's go to the flood, because that's the usual place we think of, isn't it? I want to go through this, because I'm not doing this just for you, but for everybody else that listens to these Sabbath schools, so that if they're thinking, oh, but, but, you know, we've uncovered it, okay? So, uh, Genesis 6, and Adam, why don't you begin? Just read a couple of verses and hand the mic on. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all um, that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went in to the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how, saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to the cubit above and put the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Where's God's anger? Not referred to. Yeah. He's not angry. He's sorry. He's grieved. In fact, uh, grieved to his heart. What does that mean? He's not heartache. Yeah. Uh, I, my version has he was heartbroken. I imagine there was a lot of suffering going on. You know, so how could he allow this to just go? Because men what lived almost a thousand years. Mm-hmm. So how could a God of love just blindly pretend like it's not going on or something? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Imagine children were being abused and all kinds of things. You know, it says the earth was filled with violence. Yeah. Um, so, it, violence was normal, and I think we need to keep that in mind as we look at the rest of Scripture. Once we once we lose the garden, the descent downward is into violence. The first thing that happens, Cain murders uh, Cain murders his brother Abel. And and then everybody starts murdering other people, and and it just escalates and escalates till the whole earth becomes filled with violence, and that means that everything God does from then until Jesus is an attempt to bring them out of that violence back to His preferred will, and that means you're going to see some violence along the way. Uh, and and how we interpret that is extremely important. Okay, where else in Genesis does God get angry, do you think? About the Tower of Babel. Okay, let's look at the Tower of Babel story, chapter 11. And I'm not going to read this. I'll just point you to a verse. Uh, the er, the people have this one language and, this, and speak the same words. Uh, they build a tower. Uh, verse 5, Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that humans built. And the Lord said there is now one people and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do and now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. Come, let's go down and mix up their language so that they won't understand each other's language. Is it say anywhere there in this passage that God is angry? Okay. I'm going to make this easy for you because we're running out of time. And I want to, I want to at least get to some kind of conclusion here today. You think of... The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Is God angry then? No. He comes down to check it out, to see if the prayers he's been hearing, people pleading for help, pleading for justice, if, if 
those prayers are based on fact. He comes down to check it out to see if people are as bad as he's hearing that they are. That's what he tells Abraham. And he allows Abraham to bargain him down, you know, bargain him down to the point where he's willing to save the city for ten righteous people. So what I'm telling you, and you can you can look in vain. I've actually challenged students. I'd give them extra credit points if they found this. <laughs> God is never angry in Genesis 1. If Genesis were the only book in our Bibles, we would never believe in the wrath of God. Now, the closest you get to it in Genesis, two places. Uh, one is uh, after Noah comes off the boat. He offers up a sacrifice. This is uh, Genesis 8, I believe. Uh, Verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing scent, and the Lord thought to himself, I will not curse the fertile land anymore because of human beings, since the ideas of the human mind are evil from their youth. The the idea that some scholars have, that is the idea that some scholars have, is that when he smelled the pleasing scent, that Noah offered these sacrifices as an appeasement, and that God was appeased, and therefore he said, I will never do this again. Okay, That's how some scholars read this. But it's quite clear, if you look at the rabbinics of this pleasing aroma, pleasing scent, uh, however versions translate it, that it is not an appeasement. It's not a recognition of appeasement. It may have had that heritage back in antiquity the way other peoples used it but by the time it becomes part of the bible that meaning is lost and what you have simply something that pleases god Uh, and besides what god thinks to himself does not sound like appeasement why does he not why does he decide not to curse the fertile land anymore because human mind is evil from its youth that doesn't sound like he's appeased. It sounds like he recognizes. Here comes Noah off the boat. And, and instead of praising God, thank you so much for keeping us safe and we're alive, he starts killing animals. So that God's flood insurance. <laughs> Appease God. He must have been really angry. Yeah. And God is saying, here goes the violence again. That, that's, why, that's why he tells Noah, um, I put the fear of animals on every creature. Did he put the fear in it? Did Noah? You know, here's Noah been the caretaker of all these animals while they've been on the boat. He comes off the boat and starts killing their kind. I'd be scared of him too. Well, this whole idea that the smell of barbecue would somehow make God be kinder or something, you know? Well, the, the Babylonians were at least a little more sensible uh, than that because they believed that uh, the way to a god's heart was through his stomach. <laughs> so you feed him, keep him happy, keep him full, he's not going to be angry at you. And you got to remember, Satan's trying to besmirch God's character. This is a whole deal going on here. He doesn't, you know. So, the other, only other place is in the story of Aaron Onan, Judah's sons, whom it says the Lord was displeased with and he slew them. 
Now, how we look at how he, what it means by he slew them is, is another question that we'll have to get to later. But the, the real question is, was, is displeasure anger? You can be displeased over something because you love the person and you don't want to see them destroying you, themselves and other people. Back to being grieved. Um, back to being grieved, yeah. So if, if the first book of the Bible that is tied so much to the beginning of things before the fall, which exemplifies God's preferred will, if that book does not mention God's anger once. Why do we have so much of it and the rest of the Old Testament? I'm going to leave with that question. I'm sorry to have to leave for for three weeks. (laughs) But I'm going to leave it there. And uh, we'll come back to it in January. Let's have prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have a book in the Bible that gives us the beginning of things, that shows us your preferred will. And we see also where we went. And your preferred will is the opposite of violence. It was violence that brought on the flood. Surely your anger is not about violence, but about restoring about your grief in losing people. And we pray that we may better grasp this as we move on through the Old Testament. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.